Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. The Morningstar Investment Conference for Investment Professionals will be held virtually this year on September 16th and 17th. We're offering the same research, analysis, and insight for investment professionals you'd get at the live event for a reduced price of $149. And the best part is, you can join us from wherever you are. For more information or to register, visit go.morningstar.com MIC. Again, that website is go.morningstar.com MIC. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz discusses how inflation could affect investors of all ages, Chelsea Tam highlights stocks in China's technology sector, and Ben Johnson sheds a light on how actively managed funds have been performing. Let's get started. Susan Jabinski and Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. address how inflation could affect investors' portfolios. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Inflation remains quite low here in the United States, but does that mean investors should disregard it entirely? Joining me today to discuss the topic is Christine Benz. Christine is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Christine, thanks for joining us today. Susan, it's always great to be with you. Now, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell has noted that he's a little bit concerned about the very low rates of inflation that we're experiencing, so much so that the Fed is going to engage in a program to help nudge up inflation a little bit. What factors have been contributing to keeping inflation as low as it's been? Well, it's mainly this pandemic, which has had major economic ramifications. We've had, uh, we've seen unemployment spike recently. We've also seen many people naturally curtail their spending as they've experienced income shocks through this period. And we've also just seen economic activity, industrial output decline during this period as well. All of these things tend to keep the brakes on inflation. And this is part of a longer term trend too, right, Christine? I mean, we have been experiencing lower inflation. Absolutely. So coming out of the last financial crisis in 2009, I think many investors were warned to kind of brace themselves for inflation that never really did materialize following that crisis. We've had a period of very low inflation and even some areas that had historically been big contributors to inflation, like healthcare costs, actually came down a bit during the previous decades. So it's been a very very tranquil period. I think it would be hard to blame investors for considering inflation kind of a non-issue at this point. So given that backdrop, why is there some talk right now about inflation and, and people perhaps being concerned about it? Well, a couple of things. One is that as with the last financial crisis, we've seen so much government spending uh, attempting to uh, ignite the economy. And we've also seen interest rates come way, way down, again, in an attempt to stoke the economy. And so these things historically have been inflationary, even if they weren't after, after the last financial crisis. Anytime you throw this much economic stimulus at an economy, the concern is that higher prices could follow, that things could get a little too hot, and that um, some of these mechanisms might overshoot a little bit. So that's a, sort of a fundamental concern 
concern. And we have begun to see a few indications that investors are being a little bit more concerned with inflation. So what's called the break-even rate, which is the differential on what you earn on an inflation-protected bond versus a nominal treasury bond. We've seen that break-even rate come up a bit. It's still not high, but it's definitely back to the levels it was it, where it was pre-pandemic. So that's one signal that investors are paying a little bit more attention to inflation. And then another thing that you and I have talked about, Susan, is the fact that we've seen the dollar drop relative to other major foreign currencies. And there are lots of conjectures about why that might be happening, and there are lots of factors that affect a currency's direction relative to other foreign currencies. But one conjecture in the mix is that investors in dollar-denominated assets are worried about inflation in the U.S. So just a couple of things that investors might want to keep on their radar. So given all of that, how concerned do you think investors should be about inflation at this point in time? Well, you know, as I've mentioned, we have had periods before where there was a lot of hand-wringing about inflation being imminent and it never really materialized. And the most recent financial crisis was a great example of that. And then I always say for people who are working and earning a paycheck, they should bear in mind that they typically are, over time at least, eligible for cost of living increases in their paychecks. And if they're not withdrawing from their portfolios, there's probably not a concern to not a reason to be inordinately concerned with inflation. And then another thing to keep in mind for younger investors and anyone who is, say, 10 years from retirement, you've probably got the bulk of your portfolio in stocks, which, while not a direct hedge against inflation, have historically out-earned inflation. So for those folks, I would say there's probably not a big reason to be too concerned about inflation today. And what about those who are closer to retirement, already in retirement? That's a separate issue. And the key reason is that for people at this life stage, even though a portion of the income they receive is probably going to be inflation adjusted in some fashion. So if you get Social Security, you may not be satisfied with the inflation increase that you receive, but you typically do receive a little bit of extra income to compensate for inflation. So that portion of your portfolio is inflation adjusted or that portion of your income stream. On the other hand, the portion that you're withdrawing to meet your living expenses is not automatically inflation protected. So that's the portion of your portfolio if you're retired or getting close to retirement and you're getting close to drawdown that I do think it's worthwhile to look at that portfolio and make sure that you've laid in a little insulation against inflation. And I don't think you want to wait around for inflation to materialize to do that, that you want to be preemptive because if inflation starts picking up, it can often do that in a hurry. So I like the idea of investors who have bonds in their portfolio allocating some of those assets to treasury inflation protected securities, which are the most direct hedge against inflation and in that if inflation goes up, you receive a little bit of a pickup in your return to account for inflation. So TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. And this is another reason, Susan, why I like recommending equities for retirees as well, which is not to say all of their 
your portfolio should be in equities, but holding some stocks does help protect your purchasing power, or at least gives your portfolio the opportunity to grow at a faster rate than inflation. So I would say those would be the two key prescriptions. And then you might also think about some asset classes around the margin. Real estate investments have historically had some inflation hedging characteristics in part because if you're a landlord of some kind, you can typically push through higher rent increases when inflation is on the rise. Commodities also show reasonably well relative to inflation. The downside to commodities is that they're incredibly volatile as standalone investments. They can be higher cost products. I'm not as bullish on them. And precious metals, I know a lot of investors like to gravitate to in periods of inflation. When we at Morningstar look at asset classes, inflationary characteristics, inflation hedging characteristics, precious metals don't even look all that great. So you might hold precious metals for other reasons, but I wouldn't hold them as definitely a significant hedge against inflation because historically they haven't been wonderful from that standpoint. Well, Christine, sounds like it would be, might be a good time for retirees to do a little inflation protection checkup on their portfolios, right? Definitely. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today, Christine, and for all the insight. We appreciate it. Thank you, Susan. For Morningstar, I'm Susan Jabinski. Thanks for tuning in. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com Alexa. Now, Holly Black from Morningstar UK and Chelsea Tam from Morningstar Hong Kong share two China stocks they like. Welcome to Morningstar. I'm Holly Black. With me is Chelsea Tam. She's an equity analyst at Morningstar in Hong Kong. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. So, Chelsea, you cover the technology sector, and this has undoubtedly been one of the top-performing winning sectors of this year. How are technology stocks performing in China? Well, they're doing quite well, actually. If we look at the Crane Share CSI China Internet ETF, uh, on a year-to-date basis, the performance is over 40%. And generally speaking, online just performs better than the offline businesses amid COVID. And within that incredible sector performance, have there been some standout top performers for you? Yeah, so for the companies that I cover, uh, I think JD really delivers strong uh, performance with 100% year-to-date share price uh, improvements. So I think their self-owned logistics and their first-party business really provide a very reliable services amid COVID-19. Uh, We see that the revenue in the first quarter was 21% growth. And then in the second quarter, it was still was able to deliver mid 30% growth. And the other one is NetEase. I think the year to date performance is 57%. Um, They have about 90% of gross profit coming from gaming. So uh, gaming is obviously a beneficiary amid COVID as well. And have there been any weaker areas in the sector? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, Weibo was actually down 27% year to date. Uh, I think that uh, if you have a lot of brand advertising on your platform, um, you tend to get more affected uh, where performance-based advertising are probably better um, during uh 
sort of economic downturn. And also, uh, we also see structural uh, wallet share loss to short form videos for Weibo. The other one is uh, Trip.com. Uh, they have um, uh, like a 30, more than 30% coming from international travel. And they also are more positioned uh, in the higher end. So, um, so I guess they're more affected as well. Um, so the year-to-day performance is negative 16%. Okay, so amidst this backdrop, where in the sector as a whole, there have been these strong gains, do you still see investment opportunities or has anyone that's not already involved missed the boat now? Well, I think there are still opportunities in the sector. Um, so in my coverage, I think I'm uh, more comfortable with uh, Trip.com in the long run uh, because, uh, you know, international travel will basically resume anyway. Uh, but then maybe just probably just not this year or maybe not early next year. And then uh, the structural story uh, for Chinese going outbound uh, to travel to experience has not changed. Chelsea, thank you so much for your time. For Morningstar, I'm Holly Black. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Lastly, Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services discusses the performance of actively managed funds with Christine Benz. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Actively managed funds have historically posted underwhelming performance relative to their passively managed counterparts. But was the first half market volatility any different? Joining me to discuss that topic is Ben Johnson. He's Morningstar's Global Director of ETF Research. Ben, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Christine. Ben, you and the team put out this active-passive barometer uh, and let's talk about what you're trying to measure with this barometer. What we try to measure with the active-passive barometer is active funds' performance as a whole relative to their indexed peers. So our benchmark in this case to judge either success or failure on the part of active managers is actually a composite of all of the different index options that are available to investors as of the beginning of any given look back period that we include in the study. So we add up the performance of, say, SPY, the oldest S&P 500 ETF that's out there, as well as the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, and so on. And together, those funds' performance becomes the bogey by which we measure active funds, either success or failure. So to succeed by our de definition, active funds have to both survive as well as outperform that passive composite over a given period. And we look back in this instance over the course of the first six months of 2020, we look back a year, three years, five years, 10, and even 15 and 20 uh, where data will allow. Okay, so let's look at that six-month period. You don't typically look at such a short period, but it was very dramatic. We had this huge market sell-off and then a fairly substantial recovery in the second quarter. And one argument that you sometimes hear in favor of active management is that these periods of extreme turbulence, especially the down periods, 
will be times when active management may be able to distinguish itself and show that it's it's worth paying extra for. What did you see during this first half period? Well, this is the first time we've ever included such a short look back period in, in this piece because over shorter periods of time, there's just so much noise that you see in the data, so many things going on with respect to the biases that are inherent in active portfolios, the biases that are inherent in the indexes that underpin passive funds, and it just creates a lot of noise that doesn't yield any real useful information for investors. But in this instance, what we wanted to look at is whether or not that narrative as you've described it, Christine, that active managers are categorically better suited to add value, specifically through protecting investors from market downdrafts. And what we saw across the 20 categories that we include in this most recent report is that that narrative didn't really hold water. In some, just 51% of all active funds that we included both survived and outperformed their average passive peer through the first six months of this year, which is effectively a a coin flip at the end of the day. Now, that said, if you drill down and look more closely at specific groups and in specific categories, those success rates varied pretty dramatically. So what we saw is success rates were highest amongst foreign stock funds. They were lowest among active large cap funds in the stock side of the equation. And in the case of fixed income funds, they were lower relative to stock funds. So you know, some of the factors driving those trends were, first and foremost, US stock pickers have had a really tough go of it over the better part of a decade plus, And most recently, because most of the gains of the US stock market, especially coming out of the very bottom of, of the market, have been driven by just a small handful of stocks. And you know, pick your acronym du jour, be it FANG or FAAMG or FANMAG or what have you. It's the Apples, the Amazons, the Googles of the world that have been driving a disproportionate amount of the gains. And active managers have been penalized in those cases where they either don't own those stocks in their portfolios or, or they're underweight. So it's been tough to keep up. And that's not something that has been a challenge for their peers that invest in overseas markets. So what we saw was relatively higher success rates among foreign stock pickers. Now, if you look at active bond fund managers, what you see is effectively, they got caught off sides uh, coming into this year. Many of them were structurally longer on on credit risk. They were investing in more uh, credit risky securities, and they were worried about rising rates. So they were taking less interest rate risk as as they headed into the year. Now, obviously, credit spreads widened out as as the markets got very rocky, especially in the February-March timeframe. They've since come back in, and rates have come down. So what we saw is that success rates among active bond fund managers were actually lower relative to stock pickers. In total, they were about 40% across the categories that we examined in our study. So in the report, you do urge investors to look a little further out to examine the long-term performance trends rather than making too much of this six-month period. So let's talk about that. When you look at, say, time periods of 10 years or longer, one group that looks uh, particularly undistinguished in terms of active management outperformance and survival is U.S. large caps. That appears to be fairly decisive from this report. 
Absolutely. I, I think if if anything, what we're trying to help investors with it, it, in this report is is to focus on the signal. There's a lot of noise, as I mentioned, in the short term. Over the long term, there's some signals that ring through loud and clear in the results. And the first among those is is really to focus on fees. What we see is that almost uniformly, funds in the lowest cost fifth of their category, those that charge the lowest expense ratios, tend to have better than average odds of succeeding over the long term, while the most costly funds in any given category have below average odds of succeeding. So focus on fees. This shouldn't be new news to most of the people who are tuning in for this conversation today. The other, I think, important signal is is to pick your spots. There are certain areas of the market where long-term success rates have tended to be higher and where I think importantly, the payout profile, so the excess returns generated by those managers, the degree to which they outperform the average index fund in their categories tends to skew positively. So what you see in the example of the U.S. large blend category is that both the probability of picking a winning fund as well as the payout profile is, is measured by that spread of, of returns relative to the passive funds. They don't look favorable from an investor's point of view. The odds are, are very low. Success rates are very low over a 10, 15, and 20-year horizon. And the payout tends to skew negative. So even if you find a manager that you know, is somehow manages to stay alive from beginning of period to end, most of them fall short of actually beating a randomly selected index fund within that category. Now, if you look at a category like foreign large blend, for instance, and select from the lowest cost funds within that category, your success rates go up. You nearly uh, at a coin flip in terms of your odds, 48% succeeded from that lowest cost uh, quintile over the past 10 years. And the payout profile looks a lot better. So if you look at the distribution of those returns, they, they skew more positively. So you know, focus on fees, I, I think, and choose your spots are, are the two signals that we want to send loud and clear with the results of, of this research that we do. Okay, Ben, really interesting research. Thank you so much for being here to share it with us. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast for Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. 
Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.